I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Nous sommes en guerre. This is ernst. The virus is spreading. You must stay at home. When Europe really needed an all-for-one spirit, too many initially gave an only-for-me response. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels, and we hope you're staying safe and sane in these strange and difficult times. First of all, we just wanted to say thank you. Last month, we had more downloads and listens to the podcast than ever before. We know we have quite literally a captive audience at the moment, but we also know your routines are severely disrupted. The commutes, the gym sessions, or whenever else you used to listen probably aren't happening at the moment, so we very much appreciate you're still finding the time to listen. And we appreciate the feedback too to podcast at politico.eu. Thanks for the emails. Rest assured we read every one and try to reply to them all too, although that can take a bit of time. Now, coming up in this episode, you'll hear from European Commissioner for Jobs and Social Rights, Nicola Schmidt. But first, let's take the political temperature across Europe with our podcast panel. All right, I'm just going to say hi uh, as I see you on my screen, so nobody can, I can't be accused of any favouritism. So left to right, Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Guten Morgen. Uh, in Norwich, live from Norwich. That used to be a quiz show from a very, very long time ago. Annabelle Dixon. Hi, Annabelle. Hello. And in Paris, Reem Montaz. Hi, Reem. Bonjour. Um, I'm going to mention something here, which I have no idea if we can play in, but I don't know if anyone has seen the clip that the BBC have made from the thick of it, where uh, the um, the nasty Scottish spin doctor, uh, very, very, very not bad uh, stereotype, completely atypical of what Scottish people are like, played by Peter Capaldi, <laughs> um, Malcolm Tucker, uh, kind of shouts about a lockdown. Right, people, listen up. It's a f- Lockdown right now, and it's a very, it's a very funny clip. It is also filled with expletives, as just about anything Malcolm Tucker ever said uh, was. So I don't know how much we can play. Nobody move, right? Nobody move. Nobody gets truncheoned in the face. This is a lockdown, right? What that means is I actually managed to get out and about a little bit yesterday, following all the rules and guidelines, of course. But it is a bit of a police state out there at the moment. I mean, I was in a park and there was a. Park ranger checking whether two women who were exercising together lived in the same household. I heard a story the other day about a guy who took his young son uh, to a park, drove to the park with the uh, little boy's bike, and then was then stopped by the police when he got out of the car and told that this was not an essential journey and he was fined. And so I just wonder if, if any of you guys have heard examples of this kind of stuff. And it is obviously, it's a pretty severe um 
an unprecedented situation in, in peacetime anyway? And or at what point does a kind of backlash come where people think we've been in isolation for, for weeks? We don't have coronavirus. Why do we keep needing to do this? What's the mood in France? You know, th- this is where I think we're going to start seeing uh, a lot of cultural differences uh, come up and and really come to the fore. You know, at the beginning in January, February, a lot of French people were saying, oh, this government is overreacting. They're doing way too much about this. They're blowing it out of proportion. And now they're saying, you didn't do enough. You're behind the, the curb. What is going on? You're failing completely. So in terms of sort of enforcing the lockdown, at, at the beginning, they had a really hard time. You could still see the first week, like these market stalls just completely... Uh, teeming with people, clearly not social distancing. You see the Latin in them come out. Lately, people have truly been um, respecting it, although we're starting to see more and more of a role for the interior ministry and, uh, you know, repression um, and the police in order to enforce things as they've hiked up the uh, value of the fines that you, you know, you, you can get. How long they're going to be able to enforce this I really have huge doubts. Yeah, I just wonder how much that that is a deliberation at the moment. Um, Matt, I mean, you know, Ordnung must sign. Uh, people, people in Germany like to, you know, follow the rules and make sure there's order. But is there any kind of pushback? I, you know, I haven't seen much push pushback so far, to be honest. That said, I I don't think that the rules here are quite as strict as they are in some other places, or they're not being enforced to the same degree, maybe on a regional basis in Germany. I, I think, from what I've heard anecdotally, for example, that the Bavarians are much stricter. Uh, there's been a bit of a backlash down there, for example, because people in Munich like to go hiking on the weekends, and um, you know, they they drive down into the mountains in the southern part of Bavaria, and when they get caught doing that, you know, with a Munich license plate that has uh, created some problems for some people. You know, it is it is true. There are these cliches about people's uh, sort of national mentalities. And <laughs> there is there is certainly uh, something to that. I haven't had any problems here uh, so far, I have to say. Although, of course, when the uh, police see me and recognize me, you know, then they just kind of send me on my way. Um, but uh, I haven't found smart the, people. Uh, yeah. Well, I think the thing is, you were already on the wanted posters. You're probably one of the people who's benefited from this. They've got more important things to do now. That's right. Yeah. That's right. The whole society's at stake. You know. There you go. There's always an upside. Annabelle, before you jump to the lobby uh, briefing, uh, is there any any sense of of kind of pushback or people saying, you know, I've had enough of this now? The UK imposed these things a bit later, so maybe you're a bit bit earlier in that journey. I was going to say, yeah, we're well, we're sort of we're probably a funny hybrid of the two of Germany and France. Um, people are being pretty compliant, and that could be well be to do with the timing, because by the time we got to lockdown, there was a huge amount of public support for it. There was a real push for it, and there are signs that people are getting in cars and on public transport more than they should. And I don't think our measures are quite as our rules are quite as um, strict as in some other countries. And there has been quite a lot of pushback against overzealous police. Um, there was a story of a police um, officer who challenged someone for, for buying Easter eggs in their shop um, because they said it was non-essential, even though Ooh, they were in yeah, the supermarket that was a anyway. Bold move. Yeah, a so, bold move to keep the Brits from their Easter eggs, especially those cream eggs. Surely at least cream eggs are essential. Right? Exactly. I mean, well, I'm certainly feeling like that at the moment. But, um, <laughs> the, uh, but yeah, so, I, the, the, you know, there the definitely is a kind of push to, to say to the police, look, use your common sense. Let, let's 
have a go at the people who really deserve it rather than those just buying their humble Easter eggs. But I think as the death toll increases, which it looks like it's going to sadly um, in the UK, you know, I think pretty much everyone says, you know, the next two weeks are going to be pretty grim on the numbers. Um, And dare I say it, more people know someone, um, you know, have a friend of a friend or, you know, a direct relation who's ill or who dies. I I think that's when the support for these sort of measures grow. And and sort of anecdotally from colleagues in other parts of Europe, they certainly say that, you know, there is support for the lockdown when things are really, really bad and and it it feels very personal. Mm, Yeah, I think that's it. You tweeted an article from the New Statesman, which I thought was very interesting about previous pandemic plans. And it seemed to me that was the difference between people sitting in a room imagining a scenario and when it is actually real and involves real people, right? And it seemed like suddenly a lot of those provisions just went out the window because of the if you like, the emotional impact that this was going to have and and kind of numbers that may have been seemed acceptable in, in black and white and kind of planning documents suddenly just didn't seem acceptable at all, right? Yeah, that's right. It's fascinating. And actually, for all the criticism that the government had about its kind of early strategy and this talk of herd immunity and um, just sort of accepting some loss of life in some way, as you say, the reality and, and the, the sort of political mood around that and and the pressure to, to do something beyond kind of trying to, to to mitigate the medical impacts certainly as you say is very different in reality okay we'll let you jump off and we will have a we will get uh, deep into the weeds of the european union thanks annabelle talk to <laughs> Enjoy. you thank week. you cheers um just to kind of sum up from a brussels uh, perspective i was um a duty editor uh, for Politico at the weekend, and it turned out to be a very uh, busy weekend where Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, gave an interview to DPA, the German news agency. Didn't really make uh, many waves as far as I could see in Germany, but uh, as part of this interview, she talked about the concept of corona bonds, some kind of uh, joint mutual uh, debt that would be issued by the EU or the Eurozone, which would be used to help you know finance the economic um, response to all of this. And uh, she described it in German as a Schlagwort, which might be called a, a slogan or a catchphrase, and then said that uh, there was a concept behind it um, and the German reservations about that concept were justified. Uh, this went down extremely badly in, in Italy, which, as we know, has been very hard hit by the coronavirus. And you could see things kind of snowballing to the point where suddenly the commission had to issue a statement on Saturday night, which I think might be the first time I've ever seen that happen, um, promising that the EU budget would be brought into uh, play to help with the response and um, adding a note that nothing was being ruled out uh, that was within the scope of the EU treaties. And it seemed like this whole thing had basically been done uh, to try and placate Italy after uh, Italian leaders uh, voiced uh, very strong objections to the way that Ursula von der Leyen had had dealt with this. And now we see the Commission trying to get on the front foot by uh, producing this um, proposal for some kind of uh, scheme to back uh, unemployment benefit schemes in various countries, this idea of Kurzarbeit, keeping people on kind of shorter work while just to kind of keep them on the payroll and they're supported by the state during that time. And and here we hear Ursula von der Leyen basically saying this is happening, Europe is going to help. Europe is now coming to their support with a new initiative. It is called SURE. 
when in Thanks fact this is a commission sure. proposal that seems it seems like it will still have to be approved and you know have to go through the usual uh, channels here in Brussels. So I just wondered um, what you guys made of it from a kind of Berlin and and Paris perspective. Yeah, I think I think the interesting thing about that interview and just the way it was handled afterwards, it just shows again how ham-handed von der Leyen has been so far as commission president. Uh, you know, people probably remember at the beginning of this whole crisis in in March, uh, she seemed kind of oblivious to what was going on in Italy and just wanted to talk about the uh, her first 100 days, as, as, as we've discussed before. And, and, and this just seems to keep keep happening. I think they have a real communication problem and I, I think the, the the substance of of the problem is 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 is, is really that you know where's this money going to come from I mean it's one thing to say we're going to set up a fund of 200 billion euros for you know these short work schemes but is, is that really going to be enough and I, I think that those are questions that nobody is really answering and and this is I think also what uh, is sort of enraging the Italians because the proposals that are out there so far where you, you have you know the other kind of main proposal that's on the table now is to use the the bailout fund the ESM to to give countries loans equaling um, you know two percent of of their GDP uh, which in Italy's case would be about 40 billion euros which is not going to get them very far given that their entire economy now has effectively ground to a halt so I think you know there there needs to be some kind of realization of the magnitude of the problem and a real strategy for dealing with it rather than just this patchwork solution and you know kind of for now relying on the ECB to keep the markets under control because that's I don't think going to work forever. Right, I think the sure scheme that that Ursula von der Leyen is talking may even be be less, more like a hundred billion. But but whatever it is, it's not as you say. It, it doesn't seem to. It may be part of the solution, but maybe not a major part. Um, you know, I would just say on the, on the commu- communication front, I do think Ursula von der Leyen was trying to hedge her bets, but I do think she's given a number of interviews to German media outlets, and if you talk to German media outlets in German using words like Schlagwort and say that German reservations are justified, you know, I don't think you can be too surprised if that doesn't go down uh, hugely well in other parts of the continent, which kind of brings us to, to Paris, Reem, because I did notice uh, over the weekend that Emmanuel Macron at least seemed to have the, the smarts or the people around him uh, for him to talk to Italian media, um, you know, stressing solidarity. But beyond that, where does where does France stand on a lot of these issues about, you know, how economic solidarity might be brought to bear? You know, France is playing a a really very interesting and and actually nuanced, um, I think, role in in all of this. Like you said, uh, Macron spoke directly to the three top Italian papers, uh, you know, because it's been something that's been, according to his advisors who've been working with him on this, it's been very much uh, a very important thing for him to make sure that uh, Italy, but also Spain, but really Italy, feel like uh, the EU is with them, that they have the support that they need, and that this is not a repeat of the financial crisis of 2008, that they are not going to be abandoned. That being said, they have also had some pretty, uh, dare I say, direct conversations with the Italians. You know, we saw that uh, letter that the nine countries sent, so France, Italy, Spain, and a few others, uh, right before the European Council meeting um, summit, in which they were basically making the case for uh, a real common uh, debt instrument, as they put it. And you will have noticed that the word coronavirus 
did not exist. And that was a French position. And he had a conversation about that with uh, the Italians to explain that from his perspective, it wasn't the best move to uh, sort of crystallize the conversation and get people really stressed over one word. What he wants is for Europe, and actually, as Matt was saying, for Europe to have a real global strategic approach to this. And the other thing that really was very striking about this whole sort of weekend thing with von der Leyen is that the way they handled it seemed to me like they were, you know, deflecting and distracting by bringing in sort of the budget uh, into play when we know very well that the current conversation on the budget is at a complete standstill. So it just seemed to be like she made one mistake and then added to it by making it a little worse. I, I think the, the, the really fatal thing on the uh, interview, though, was the fact that it was coming from a German as well. Yeah, and no doubt. that it just seemed to confirm in everybody in Southern Europe's mind that at the end of the day, Ursula von der Leyen is a proxy for the German conservatives and uh, that she's going to kind of fight their corner. And that in terms of uh, European solidarity is just absolutely uh, toxic. Yeah, no, that's it. I think if you're a German commission president, you talk to German media in German and say German reservations are justified. Um, you know, that's a at least a questionable strategy when you are the European commission uh, president. Can I just say one more thing on that, uh, Andrew, just from the Italian approach? I think that that's also been slightly problematic in the sense that they've come out now and said, well, you know, we don't want mutualization of debt. We don't want pooling of debt here. All we want is a pooling of risk. That is, we want you to help us guarantee these loans that we need to take so that we have to pay a lower interest rate. And I, I think that that is an argument that is not going to get them very far because to, to German ears, it's going to look like, oh, well, here are the Italians trying to pull the wool over our eyes by saying, well, we just need you to back these loans. And of course, we're going to pay them back ourselves. The kind of bigger picture here really is whether the crisis forces the Eurozone into some kind of um, fiscal union, which is what most economists have said has been lacking from the beginning of the Euro and is kind of the fatal flaw. And this is something I think a lot of people don't understand the German position, that they are not necessarily opposed to that if there are enough controls. And, and this would mean by fiscal union that you would have a kind of finance minister or somebody in that role, a treasurer, and that the Eurozone itself would be able to raise tax income and issue debt and all of this type of thing. Now, so far, the, the Germans have rejected that because they have not gotten agreement from France and others to allow for real oversight of their budgets, which is what you know these governments don't want to relinquish because it's the, the greatest power that any politician has is, is over, over the purse. And so what the Germans demanded during the Euro crisis, and I suspect this will come up again in this debate, is that if we go down this route, we're going to need very strict controls out of Brussels or wherever, uh, overseeing these these national budgets. So it's it's going to have to be a, a give and take if this if this kind of Corona bond or whatever you want to call it um, is is to go forward. Right, and so I guess we're going to see whether the the kind of heat of a crisis, uh, you know, manages to forge something that can't be forged in, in normal times, and and I guess we'll see in the kind of weeks or or months ahead. Okay, we'll leave it there, uh, Matt. Reem, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. 
And now let's hear from Nicholas Schmidt, the European Commissioner for Jobs and Social Rights. Earlier this week, he spoke with our industrial policy reporter, Paula Tama, where he broke the news that the European Commission is working on a plan to help shore up unemployment benefits across the European Union, a plan which has since been announced by Commission President Ursula von der Leyen. As you well know, the coronavirus crisis is not only impacting people's health in devastating ways, but it's also expected to have a long-lasting impact on our economies and on unemployment. As many as 25 million jobs could be lost worldwide, according to mid-March estimates from the International Labour Organization. And that number is likely to rise, according to officials. Paula starts off by asking the Commissioner what mixture of measures are needed in order to avoid long-lasting unemployment in the EU as a result of the crisis. Well, I think we are all aware that uh, this risk of massive uh, mass unemployment exists. And therefore, I think uh, most of the member states have already taken the right measures. And one of the first measures which has been taken is uh, a short-time work uh, mechanism. I had a a meeting with the employment ministers last week, and I noticed that uh, really, uh, without uh, perhaps a few exceptions, this scheme has been a Adopted everywhere. The second one is uh, we have to prepare the recovery, and uh, because uh, the recovery will decide upon the fact if we will have uh, mass unemployment and lasting mass unemployment, long-term unemployment, or if uh, indeed we can shorten this period and bring people back to jobs uh, very, very, very rapidly. And this is about macroeconomics. This is about managing uh, this recovery. And that's uh, on this, uh, the Commission has started to work. Exactly. European leaders asked you for an action plan to come out of the crisis in a coordinated and effective way. What are some of the elements that you're likely to propose or that you're looking at as part of this action plan? Yeah, the first thing is we have to prepare the action plan and recovery now. It's not uh, once we have uh, put the uh, sanitarian crisis under control that then we start with the action plan. The action plan starts now. And one of the elements is certainly supporting this uh, short-time work mechanism, because if people stay in their jobs, first, uh, it will be much easier for companies to restart production again, because if people are are laid off, uh, this will take uh, much more time. And the last crisis uh, is a good example for that. That's one of the first. Second, that's also bringing confidence in the economy, confidence that uh, we have overcome the crisis and the economy can really start again. And this is uh, linked to jobs, to employment, and this is linked also to saving companies because without companies, we won't have a recovery. And especially uh, this applies to SMEs because uh, they are uh, most uh, in danger. SMEs have not the financial surface to survive a long time, a period like this one. So we have really to support a lot as a means and to give them the opportunity to stay in the market. So what are the risks? What happens if government get this wrong? 
Well, I cannot assume this uh, scenario. I hope that governments will uh, governments uh, will uh, will have it right because uh, the uh, uh, if if they uh, if they got it wrong, that would mean exactly mass unemployment, a very sluggish economy, not for some months but for years, and therefore we have to start acting now, and we have to continue this for uh, a certain. Period in order to stabilize the economy and uh, to give uh, a new impetus. By the way, we also have to prepare the changes uh, in our economy. We we have talked a lot about the Green Deal. We have talked a lot about the technological changes. They are not uh, now put to an end. They are still on the agenda, and especially also the technological changes. So working on the skills of our employees is something we we should not neglect. So this is also part of an active employment policy that people, when the recovery is there, when the changes in companies will occur, because when uh, companies will restart working, they will also change inside and probably accelerate their digitalization, and therefore we need to invest a lot in uh, people's skills. Thank you. Well, the EU on social policy has very limited scope. What are the levers at your disposal to ensure that workers are able to start working again once the health crisis is over? Well, this commission uh, is very much committed uh, to the social dimension. This has been uh, repeated again and again also by the president of the commission. So I think we we, we keep on defending uh, what is in the social pillar because I think uh, we have noticed now that this crisis in Europe is very serious, is very bad, but uh, Europe can cope better with this kind of crisis because we have a... a strong and solid social system when we can compare it to other regions in the uh, in the world so we have to keep on uh, working on social rights social services social protection and especially also investing a lot in education and skills at the same time though draft laws in some eastern european countries are suggesting that there is a risk of government peeling back hard fought labor rights is this a worrying trend for you? Well, I I do not think that uh, uh, pulling back on social rights and working uh, and labor rights is the right way to overcome this crisis. Uh, what we need precisely is uh, solidarity. What we need is social dialogue to manage this crisis at the level of uh, our member states, at the level at the European level and certainly at the the company level. So I'm a bit uh, scared about what's happening now that uh, in this emergency situation, some uh, elements can be adapted uh, 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 in the context of uh, social negotiation, of uh, negotiation between social partners. That is absolutely understandable. But now to roll back on social rights, on labor rights, I think that's the wrong way to get out of this crisis. What would be the long-term consequences if governments went down that route? Well, uh, that would be uh, a new divide in Europe. Uh, and that's not what we really uh, should aim for, because uh, what, what we talk a lot about uh, economic convergence, what we uh, would 
should not be lost out of sight. That's economic convergence, but uh, at the same time, social convergence. So we cannot uh, rebuild uh, the after crisis on more social divergence. So this is something which has then to be debated inside the European Union. And this is something which uh, would uh, really be a a dangerous approach uh, for the cohesion of the European Union. On, in terms of economic fair forecasts, these are pretty grim. Deutsche Bank expects the Eurozone GDP to contract by 11.4% in the second quarter of this year. There are fears that a new economic crisis of the proportions of the Great Depression might be looming. Some governments may respond by arguing that the labor market needs to be as flexible as possible to be able to ensure a rebound. How would you answer that? Well, I'm not convinced that flexibility alone will help us to uh, improve the labor market once we are getting out uh, of this deep crisis. I think what we have to do is prepare our labor force for the new, for the after crisis. And there will be a lot of changes in our economy. There is an awareness now that Europe needs to rebuild a stronger industry. There is an awareness that we need skilled people. There is an awareness that uh, we have to review our social services. I think we have all discovered that uh, the lack of uh, sufficient investments in our health systems was not a very good, uh, finally, a good approach, uh, that we have suffered from this lack of uh, uh, investment. So I think we have to rebuild a lot of things, and this cannot be just done by uh, rolling back social rights, uh, labor rights, and uh, uh, by the only uh, the obsession of having more flexible labor markets. Trade unions are calling for EU-wide unemployment reinsurance. One option for it is to be financed by EU debt. Is the Commission willing to look into it? Well, we are working on an emergency unemployment uh, mechanism or reinsurance mechanism. We are working very hard on it and I hope that we can come up with uh, a proposal soon. I know that the uh, President of the Commission is very much committed to it too. So we are working on it and I think we have to bring up uh, some um, instrument first because we are we have absolutely convinced that this uh, unemployment or a short time work is essential that we have to show some solidarity or better solidarity in this context and therefore this instrument uh, is needed how would such an instrument be financed and when do you expect that this could actually be put in place how it will be financed we are as i told you we are working on that this is uh, probably the most uh, difficult aspect but i think uh, uh, solutions are within reach And uh, when I say when, I uh, as soon as possible, as soon as possible, because uh, when I look at the figures, uh, I see that unemployment is uh, is surging and uh, also the numbers of people who are in short time or technical unemployment uh, is uh, really uh, or are really exploding. So I think uh, such an instrument uh, is, is really needed. Would you be personally in favor of EU debt insurance to pursue such a policy? Well, I think uh, what we need in uh, this uh, context, in this uh, policy, is uh, some basic solidarity uh, between member states. And I I would say it very, uh, very bluntly. It would be an illusion to think that some countries uh, will have a fast and strong recovery and uh, some others... Uh, 
in the European Union would just uh, uh, lag uh, or lag even more behind than they did before. Uh, Europe will come out of this health crisis, but also social and economic crisis together, or we will enter uh, a more difficult period, which at the end will be detrimental to everybody. So solidarity is the word we, we, we should uh, put into concrete political action. At the beginning of the year, the Commission launched works for a European minimum wage proposal. Is such project going to be forced to take the back of the queue, given more pressing concerns today? Well, certainly we are very much focused now on all the issues we have discussed now, but uh, we will not give up this uh, idea. Uh, this is still uh, an issue which has to be pursued. So uh, we, we, we continue working on that and we certainly uh, will uh, pro make proposals uh, to the social partners because uh, we should normally enter the second phase of consultation and I'm still confident that we can do that. How do you rate the EU's overall response to this crisis and what could have happened earlier or better? You know, you always can say this would uh, could have uh, happened better or this. Uh, I think we have to be really action-oriented. Uh, we have to see what uh, good solutions can be uh, can be implemented now. We should not lose any time. That's the case, for instance, on this uh, unemployment or short-term uh, emergency scheme. Now, I think we have to look forward and uh, prepare the, uh, the end of this crisis and, the, and prepare a successful recovery. That's what we should do. And After we can, uh, we will have time to analyze what could have been done better. I think a lot of good measures have been taken. Now, they could have been taken a week earlier, but nobody at the end was aware of the strong or immense impact of this uh, health crisis. I think uh, uh, we, it took us uh, some time before we really understood what was going on. And uh, once we had understood it, I think the reactions and our actions were quite, quite good. Thank you so much, Commissioner. Thank you. European Commissioner Nicola Schmidt talking to Paula Tama. And that's all we have time for on this episode of EU Confidential. We'll be back on Monday with another special episode focusing on Europe's response to the coronavirus crisis. In the meantime, we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And also, please take a minute to rate us by clicking some stars and leaving a review. If you have ideas for topics or guests, don't hesitate to get in touch. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.